This is Fresh Shed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas and educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. It's common to believe that education makes people socially mobile. The more education one receives, the greater job prospects one will have. There are even whole economic theories that explore the relationship between education, productivity, and earnings. Because of this assumption, education is believed to reduce inequality. But what if the power we commonly place on education is misplaced? What if the story is more complex than what our neat theories of the economy and society tell us? This is where history comes in. My guest today is Christina Groger. She's recently written The Education Trap, Schools and the Remaking of Inequality in Boston. Christina explores the history of work and education in Boston between 1880 and 1930 and finds legacies that continue into the present. The point that I try to make is that formal education was pretty marginal to the vast majority of jobs in in the workforce. So most people had a primary school education but did not go on beyond that. And the pathways into work that existed were mostly through kind of family and kinship and and really informal networks um, that were also shaped by race and ethnicity and sort of local communities in Boston. Christina Groger is an assistant professor of history at Lake Forest College. Christina Groger, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thanks so much for having me. So in the 1880s in Boston, Massachusetts, what sort of jobs did people have? Good question. Um, so the the workforce was very much divided um, and gender was probably the biggest division. So the, the men and women's workforce looked really different. Um, and for men, um, the one of the biggest categories of work or sectors of work was working in the trades. Um, so craft workers in Boston, there were a lot of tailors, uh, carpenters and builders, uh, machinists and kind of metal workers. There were also kind of a, a fair number of white collar jobs, um, things like clerks or merchants apprentices. Essentially, Boston was a big commercial center um, and there was a lot of trade going in and out of the port. And then a large sector of low wage work. And in the book, I sort of lumped together for men, it was manual labor, you know, building Boston, building the subway system, um, a lot of outdoor work, working in factories as helpers and laborers. And that was kind of one of the largest types of work um, for men. For women, um, women had fewer options and the vast majority of women worked as domestic workers. So sort of low-wage service work um, was really the the biggest category of work for women with a smaller number of women working in factories and in some white-collar jobs, although by 1880, Uh, that was pretty minimal. White-collar work was still predominantly for men, um, and the only really profession available for women was teaching, so a small number of of, of female teachers kind of at the top of the economic ladder. 
And was there a high employment rate at the time? For men, I mean, this is, again, a sort of very gender, hmm. gender structured labor market. So for men, you know, the majority of men worked in the workforce and for women, the rates would have been high for younger women. Um, and then almost all women, as soon as they got married, you know, left the formal labor market. So the majority of women, you know, overall in Boston are actually outside of the labor, the paid workforce. Uh, but of course, that just meant, you know, that didn't mean they weren't working. It just meant that their work was usually unpaid labor in the home. Um, so so even for, you could say, for women both in and out of the formal labor market, the vast majority of work that they're doing is things like cooking and cleaning and care work for young kids, for older relatives, uh, that kind of thing. And so what sort of pathways existed at the time to get into these different professions? Yeah, so um, this is the at the beginning of my book, I try to paint a picture of what this world looks like. And I think it's this is one of, you know, what history is, is useful for to kind of get into a really different, um, a different world and one that looked very different than what we see now. And the point that I try to make is that formal education was pretty marginal to the vast majority of jobs in, in the workforce. So most people had a primary school education, but did not go on beyond that. And the pathways into work that existed were mostly through kind of family and kinship and, and really informal networks um, that were also shaped by race and ethnicity and sort of local communities in Boston. So, you know, for recent immigrants who were primarily going into low-wage laboring and service jobs, there, you know, immigrant communities would help each other find, you know, help new arrivals find work, but it would have would have been sort of going to the work site, right, and getting a job, becoming a street paver or or another kind of laboring job, kind of uh, getting hired right on the spot, and then learning work on the job, not getting any real formal training in a school for for work, and even for you know craft workers often had a either a formal or informal apprenticeship process to learn the trade. So they they wouldn't learn in a school building, they would just become an apprentice and learn on the job. And then even for white collar work and, and jobs that we think of now as, you know, the learned professions, so jobs like lawyers, um, doctors, teachers, these, most people who went into these fields had, they might, you know, they, they had high school education, usually they might have a college education as well, but there were almost no professional schools really. So the actual, the work of, of, or the process of learning, you know, what does it actually mean to be a lawyer that was done also on the job. So you would work alongside a practitioner uh, or if you were a, a clerk, you would work alongside a merchant or a business owner, and you would really learn the skills of that job alongside a, a mentor in the practice of doing that job. So skills and training were happening on the job, not necessarily in and through schools at in the 1880s. And so for for a white collar job like, you know, being a lawyer, as you brought up, did lawyers have to pass the bar 
to sort of be qualified to, you know, perform law, to actually work and be certified. Um, it, was that something that existed at that point? Yes. The bar exam is, is organized earlier on in the 19th century. So there was... In the case of law, there there was a um, a formal you know exam. Hmm. The I talk a little bit about how you know some of these for the the professions and even future processes of professionalization, we really see you know existing practitioners try to control entry into the profession by using you know things like exams or licensing and then eventually higher education becomes sort of the primary way of controlling entry mm. but you know you could anyone could study and then pass the bar exam you wouldn't need to attend a specific school to do that you might learn that you know on your own and some of the earliest uh really they were kind of for-profit sort of upstart <laughs> law schools basically start because if you didn't already have a contact with a lawyer and you couldn't get that practice working alongside a, a mentor, then, you know, you might pay to go to a school that, you know, in the evenings where you could learn the law and then pass the bar exam. So that that's sort of one of the early ways that schools provide this alternative pathway. If you didn't have that family or that sort of social network available to you. It sounds a lot like private tutoring today where you sort of you, you cram for the examination out, you know, outside of certain hours and and it's the the whole institution of tutoring is set up to help you pass a particular examination. Yeah, and I, I think that there were a number of jobs where really the when it was very much about learning a particular skill, and I think we, we see this today, you know, in, in new jobs where existing schools aren't providing necessarily the the right kind of skills or the thinking of like computer coding or something like that, where basically the what matters is this technical skill. Um, and if there isn't existing ways of learning that, then this can lead to basically, you know, educational entrepreneurs coming in and offering this as a service. And a lot of schools at the time were very small, really just, you know, I talk about one law school, Suffolk Law School, that now exists as a university. But when it started, it was just uh, a lawyer who in his living room, you know, tutored a few other other lawyers um, or aspiring lawyers to pass the bar exam. But on the other end of the spectrum, in terms of types of work, so not the white collar work, but more of that manual labor that, say, recent immigrants or African Americans were, in a sense, relegated to in many ways. There, there wasn't a similar sort of you have to pass certain qualifications or have you know certain licenses to do the to do that manual labor, right? You would just learn how to do it on the job. Yes, yeah, and I think here's where the you know it really depends on the position of a job in the overall economy and whether it was you know profitable and lucrative for the overall economy. Uh, we need to we need to understand that position in order to understand the role that education and formal schooling could could even play. So mm. in a profession like law, where, you know, this is also the time when corporate laws is emerging, this is becoming a really important and highly lucrative profession in the new economy. So it makes sense that people would pay to get the training to enter that kind of work at the lower ends of the labor market in low wage jobs, you know, these are jobs that in Boston, recent immigrants and African Americans, you know, are really 
limited to, um, are, they're excluded from a lot of other sectors of work, um, in particular African-Americans. Mm. And these are, are jobs that have very little power in, in the economy, right? Are, there are very few labor regulations in 1880. So schooling doesn't, you know, is not going to provide the same opportunities to sort of advance in the labor market. But of course, there are a lot of, um, I talk about how there are attempts to try to do something similar, to try to professionalize jobs like domestic service. Um, I should also mention that I think in terms of how workers actually learn the skills in these jobs, I think in some ways, like one of the reasons that domestic work, say, you know, cooking and cleaning was paid very little, wasn't that it wasn't that there wasn't skill involved. It was just that these were the kinds of skills that women often would learn informally, you know, from their mothers or aunts. Um, it was kind of a a devalued skill because it was informally acquired. And of course, there are gender dimensions to that too. Mm. So I avoid using the word unskilled, which is often a way that low-wage jobs are, are talked about um, in the book, just because I think the, the connection between wages and actual skill involved is not <laughs> as straightforward <laughs> as we would, as that language would imply. So, but so reformers are looking at low-wage work, that occupations like domestic service. And I think because many of many progressive era reformers were college educated themselves, they were seeing, you know, in other professions at the time, they were observing how something like law, you know, more more schools were emerging to provide training and skills. And their assessment was, oh, well, that means that if if we just provide domestic workers with more formal training in skills like housekeeping and personal hygiene and uh, nutrition and sanitation, you know, that will elevate the status of this job, just like a field like law or a, a, another profession. And they used they use that language of profession to try to turn housekeeping into a profession. Hmm. And I, I make the point that this in some ways is is similar to kind of a human capital understanding of, you know, if, if you just increase skills, you get more wages. And it's a very sort of simple relationship. But of course, in the sector of yeah, domestic workers, this was a field that women did not want to stay in, um, you know, were looking for any alternative to get out of it. So they just didn't show up to these classes uh, that new professionals and, and reformers launched um, sort of schools of housekeeping ended up being a total flop because no domestic workers really wanted to show up and spend their time. If they were going to spend time in school, they, they wouldn't do it uh, going to a, a school of housekeeping. They would go into some other kind of job. So that assessment and um, the reformers understanding of the way education could shape the labor market just really didn't didn't apply uh, because it was a, a very different low wage work was in a very different structural position in the economy than other professions. It, it's a really interesting insight that these progressive reformers were trying to basically replicate the system through which they succeeded for lower levels of work or, or, you know, work for groups of people that have been probably oppressed in society. So does that mean that these reformers first were focusing on professionalized sort of schooling before what we might call basic education? 
Oh, well, I think they saw a promise in what we might call vocational education and sort of vocational meaning that for them, like this was training in a specific occupation or in a profession. And, you know, I talk about sort of how vocational training efforts were applied widely Mm. in, yeah, almost all sectors of work. And some of them were very successful in in white collar and professional jobs, um, but other kinds of training were really fell short. And that happened both in low wage work and then craft work is a a slightly different story of why that failed. Um, But those forms of vocational training were not as successful. Right. I'm just wondering, when did sort of mainstream public schooling become available for African-Americans and new immigrants who might have been the targets of these more vocational training by the reformers? I mean, when did that sort of fit into this historical narrative? Yeah, um, that's a good question. I, I mean, the primary school system, you know, Boston had developed since the the common school movement, which is the kind of in the mid 19th century. And there was, you know, there were high, high literacy rates and high rates of school attendance and enrollment in Boston. It varied across, you know, by class to a certain extent. So, mm. you know, the sons and daughters of white collar workers and professionals were were attending, you know, maybe 90% of their children were already getting some primary school education at this time, whereas 50 or 60% of the children of laborers were. But I think the, the norm was still, you know, to acquire a, a basic numeracy and literacy you would attend primary school and what changes um, and in the period that that I write about late 19th, early 20th century, it's known as the high school movement because the big shift is a huge sort of surge of enrollment in high schools and high schools becomes really something, you know, only a few percentage of Bostonians uh, attend high school in 1880 and then this becomes almost sort of a universal experience for teenagers uh, by 1940, where I end the story. And was the logic to bring more people into high school connected to the labor market? Was it a way of sort of, you know, providing the skills that that different laboring classes needed to perform their jobs? Yes. And so here, I think there's reformers attempts. And I think um, there's a lot, you know, different ideas about what education could accomplish and kind of different interests. Um, But the really the success story that I talk about, um, and what the main driver of the high school movement was in my assessment is that essentially this became a really successful form of vocational training for white collar jobs Hmm. in the expanding corporate economy. um, You know, these would be jobs like accounting and bookkeeping, secretaries, typists, sort of all the the paperwork um, and the sales involved in new corporations, new kinds of industries. And initially on the scene, you know, before high schools really take over this function, we see something similar to to what I was describing in law, where there are a lot of, you know, upstart proprietary schools, they're called. Um, Some of them are just a teacher and like a classroom, but they're often called business or commercial colleges. We can think of them as kind of the for-profit sector of, of their day. And they start offering business training. So commercial arithmetic and bookkeeping, accounting, penmanship at the beginning, and then then mostly typing and stenography, like shorthand um, 
kind of by the, the early 20th century. And yeah, and they really provide avenues for those who otherwise would not have access to a, a mentor or practitioner. They provide this pathway into, or they allow a lot of children of immigrants and women to kind of access these skills that otherwise they wouldn't be able to obtain uh, to then enter this, this is the fastest growing sector of work for both men and women. And by the end of this period, the um, it's about 20% of men and 40% of women are now involved in some kind of white collar work. So this is a really big shift, especially for women in the labor market. So, so there's a big shift in the labor market and you have a lot more people of potentially lower classes being trained in these new institutions in these new skills, but yet you still see a division when it comes to, you know, which classes are getting which jobs and which, you know, are getting paid higher amounts of, of money. Is that right? Yes. And one of the things I think that happens in this sector of work and white collar work um, is I think it most pronounced again in a, as a gendered division, but also is shaped by race and ethnicity. But as women are, um, you know, increasingly, these jobs were almost exclusively men in the 1880s, but jobs like being a typist or a stenographer, they very quickly feminize. And and as women are, you know, first getting some training in these proprietary schools, but then very quickly high schools become the dominant institution. And there's, there's a real effort to, uh, I think, by reformers who see sort of the potential for exploitation in the proprietary field, uh, they try to promote the high school as, you know, this is the public alternative that we want students to attend instead. And for students, of course, public high schools are free, so they don't have to pay for it. Um, so high schools become sort of the dominant training ground, um, especially for women. But as more women enter these fields, we start seeing, and this this is repeated in, you know, in, in professions that women enter. And I think there's many contemporary parallels, but sort of as a profession is feminized, we see kind of ways that the labor, ways that that sector differentiates. And men are, are usually successful in claiming the, the top of the ladder. So in this case, you know, new jobs in man, business management or sort of as the supervisors of typists and secretaries. Uh, we start seeing this differentiation in the white collar workforce. So what mm. used to be a kind of a an avenue into business ownership or a kind of, you know, upwardly mobile um, job becomes by the end of this period, a kind of dead end or, you know, entry level job where like the top the, the maximum that a woman could rise would be to become a secretary, but management jobs are sort of end up being closed. Um, and we have a, a large pool of what then becomes pink collar work or basically feminized uh, white collar jobs um, that get this this new designation and a large number of pink collar workers and then a smaller number of male managers that supervise them at the top. And how did education sort of operate within that system of, of differentiating between the labor force, between, you know, the high-end management jobs and then what you're calling the, the pink sort of collar labor force made up of mostly women? Yeah. So one of the stories that I tell in the book and maybe one of the correctives that I'm making in the, at least in sort of understandings of the history of education, is that we really need to 
see what's happening in colleges and universities at this time as a reaction to what's happening in lower levels of education. So mm. we have to kind of look at these um, these different sectors together. And I think what I see is that, you know, as more women and the children of immigrants enter and, you know, enter white collar work and attend high school, and remember, high school had been a sort of more exclusive institution in 1880. You know, as it becomes this mass institution, we see basically a reaction uh, to this among Boston's traditional uh, elite. And colleges and universities had been associated with elites, you know, since for centuries already in or at least a century already in Boston, but we see sort of new ways that elites work with colleges and universities to try to control entry into what are sort of new and emerging fields in the economy and particularly the new corporate economy. So, you know, Boston Brahmins, um, the kind of traditional economic elite in Boston at this, at the turn of the century was you know, it, it was in an, a fairly unstable position um, that, you know, growing industries in Western states and, um, you know, the center of finance had kind of moved from Boston to New York. So there's a lot of concern about, you know, what is the future of this traditional elite in Boston go going to be? And there is a real effort to try to create new pathways into, you know, the new money or the, like the, the corporate world. And we see how elites use higher education and, you know, Harvard in particular, but also a range of other, there are other colleges and universities in Boston at the time, all, all private, but they use these institutions to try to create new connections to the corporate world and to try to attract, um, like Harvard, for instance, tries to attract a more national student body to, you know, get the, the sons and daughters of other corporate elites in Western states, you know, to come to Harvard for the first time. So mm. through using these, you know, college credentials, elites are able to to forge these ties. And I use one of the the, the sources that I use to talk about this is the, the records of placement offices, which are sort of the career advancement centers of when they're originally founded. They're often called university placement offices, and they they are working with employers and especially through alumni networks to try to find their graduates' jobs. And we can see how, you know, in the letters that are written between placement officers and employers, we can see, you know, how much of some of what they're discussing has to do with academic skill, but it also has to do with, you know, were you in the in this exclusive club, you know, at Harvard, or did you uh, do the right extracurriculars? Are you of the right race and ethnic and religious group? So what I basically see is the way that through these new employment offices, they are recreating what looks like an older elite, but now it's sort of happening through a university setting. So universities take on this new function of reproducing wealth and inequality. Right. And sort of legitimizing it through the, you know, the giving of a credential of some sort. Exactly. Yes. Um, you could say it launders, um, <laughs> launders uh, wealth kind of through an academic meritocracy, um, or at least what's perceived to be sort of academic merit at this time. So that's sort of the, you know, the, the growing corporate sector in Boston at the time and the sort of, you know, rise of women in the, the workforce and how then the elite 
sort of finds a way to to maintain its eliteness in a sense. What about labor unions? I mean, Boston has a pretty large manufacturing section or sector. I would imagine labor unions are or were quite powerful. You know, were they able to sort of counter some of these elite movements to, to protect the workers in that sector? Yeah, well, so they try. Um, and so at this time, yeah, Boston is home to a very kind of powerful group of craft unions. Um, so unions for specific trades. And in some ways, they they function similarly to sort of a professional association in, in the sense that they are their, their power comes from being able to control access into the trade. And that means, you know, controlling access to training and apprenticeship. Um, so, right. So they, they sort of regulate a union apprenticeship. And one of the key political conflicts in this period is between craft unions and then employers who are very eager to avoid craft union regulations and avoid the apprenticeship process. Um, and so in here's another example of sort of an attempt to use vocational training. Um, so employers basically try to use industrial schools um, or trade private trade schools or even industrial education in the public school system essentially as like a union avoidance tactic if they can find a cheaper way of training their craft workers um, and a, a way of training their workers that avoids craft union influence and even sort of ideological influence um, they are very eager to to do so so they try to use you know new forms and there's a lot of so much discussion about industrial education in this time period is, you know, promising that this is going to transform, you know, revolutionize the labor market and, and kind of allow employers to really build up an entirely new forces of, of workers. Hmm. Uh, the problem is that because craft unions are one of the few sectors of work that have real organized power in this period, they're pretty successful in limiting these industrial programs. So either they can shut them down or in the case of public industrial education, they're able to put some union friendly limits. Um, so, for instance, you know, rather than actually teach craft skills, a lot of what public industrial education becomes is teaching more rudimentary skills or or even more kind of math and science and more theoretical courses rather than craft union skills, which ends up meaning that, you know, these courses are not, employers don't really prefer students who go through the industrial track um, because it doesn't actually provide them with these craft skills. And that's, I think, one of, one of the reasons why industrial education, although a lot of American high schools have sort of vocational tracks, but they have not, they're usually kind of seen as second class or sort of where students who are not succeeding academically go, they aren't actually providing pathways into good jobs. Um, they, they sort of don't end up functioning in that way. So industrial education doesn't really work. And this allows employers, you know, who are still, still trying to find other ways of dealing with <laughs> these craft unions, um, it leads to this sort of another strategy by World War One, and that is really to shift the entire workforce away from craft workers onto new types of of workers that can be trained more cheaply. And we see this especially in mass production industries, where you know the proportion of very skilled craft workers 
declines and what replaces them are more, say, factory operatives where you can learn, you know, you, you don't have an extensive training process. You kind of learn much more quickly on the job. And of course, then like white collar workers are also part of this industrial transformation because they they're staffing these sort of larger, the corporate side of mass product of large scale industries. And what I kind of stress of like why this shift is important for thinking about the overall labor market is that these are new types of workers, you know, factory operatives and white collar workers. There are almost no craft unions in these sectors. So essentially this transformation is, is shifting the whole workforce onto workers who have less power. And even though white collar work was preferable employment for a lot of women who entered it, if we look at it from the perspective of employers, this was a, a very useful strategy to pay, you know, they paid women far less than they would have paid male craft workers. Um, and, and these women had almost no power kind of in the in the labor market. So from employers perspective, this is a sort of convenient shift of the workforce onto a, a labor force that's more reliant on schooling, but has a lot less power in the workplace. It's a really interesting insight to think about employers and also sort of the elite classes using education to, you know, in a sense, it's to prevent social mobility, in a sense. It's a way to sort of legitimize some of the inequality that, that exists in a society. And so I guess what you saw in Boston in the between 1880s and the 1930s or so, is this something that was found in other places in America and potentially outside of America, right? I mean, is this are these sort of industrial transformations, labor market transformations, but where you see, you know, using almost a class analysis where you see these different classes sort of vying for power and using education in ways that really go against what I think a lot of policymakers might hope education is for in the end. Yeah, I mean, I think this is definitely a broader American story. And especially in the northern United States, you know, in other urban centers across the north, I think the southern story is a bit different because in that case, um, African-Americans were really purposefully excluded from getting an education until the 1950s and 60s. And what I describe in northern cities is sort of, you know, everyone is in, included in the educational system. Um, and, and actually, I find that African-Americans have higher rates of educational attainment than, you know, immigrant um, white children or even native born white children. But, but of course, then, you know, even though they are getting educated at higher rates, they are still excluded from jobs. So in, in the North, the story is sort of a, a very encompassing educational policy, but one that if we're trying to think about, okay, but how does this play out in the labor market? We see discrimination and other inequalities happening in the labor market. In the South, I think there is sort of much more explicit discrimination in the educational system, which has a, a different political economy um, to go with it. Hmm. So I think this is a, you know, some of the things that are unique in, in a U.S. context are a very sort of decentralized and unregulated system of education, which is Part of why, you know, in Boston, there's the public sector, but then there are all these private institutions that, you know, these 
white collar sort of business training schools that just can emerge. um, And there's very little regulation of these new educational markets, which I think, and then, you know, what's happening with private universities is in some ways, kind of reflection of a lack of this unregulated system where elites can can use these institutions for their own purposes. And there's very little pushback or, or very little ways of of controlling that, um, whereas in in other European continental Europe, where university education and and education in general, you know, there's there's a much smaller private sector, sort of more centralized state institutions. There's less of a role that universities can play in that um, in controlling access to sort of the top paying jobs and mm-hmm. the other in. In the story that I just told about craft workers and trade unions, there's Germany is kind of the a country that even in the 19th century, Americans and Bostonians were saying, like, let's reproduce the industrial schools of Germany in order to kind of create good craft working and manufacturing jobs in the United States. And that's something that we still hear <laughs> here today. Um, if it's not Germany, you know, it's Sweden or, or Switzerland or another kind of another school and a vocational training program. Um, but what what happened in Germany was actually like craft unions and employers did not fight over the training process in the same way. Unions, in Germany's case, sort of industrial unions and employers and the state sort of were able to come together to regulate a new training process, which allowed schools to actually provide skills into what stayed, you know, well-paying jobs. Whereas in the U.S., you have this sort of race to the bottom where employers don't want craft workers. And so they end up trying to create, you know, replace well-paying craft union jobs with low-paid uh you know, factory operatives. So in in Germany, I think it had, you know, part of it was an education story, but it also was a story like the fact that manufacturing jobs remained well paid and jobs, you know, that you would, that young people would want to enter into. Whereas in the US, the, the economy is sort of shifting away from those well paying jobs. Um, and that's, and sort of that's the reason why we, we can't simply just reproduce, you know, what's happening in other countries through our educational system, we have to be attentive to kind of how it fits into the bigger political economy and and bigger forces of of power shaping the economy. But what I love so much about your book is that, you know, you're looking at this particular historical moment, but it says a lot about the sort of the present, right? The contemporary educational moment in in Boston, in America. Uh, Maybe there are some lessons beyond and so I, I, there's something really valuable about that historical approach to these educational problems and seeing legacies sort of persist into the present. Yeah, I mean, I, and I think there's, you know, because inequality has been rising in recent years, there's a lot of attention to how, you know, how did we get here? How do we have a country with very high educational attainment, um, but yet one of the highest rates of inequality you know, in the world, um, if education is supposed to be, uh, you know, the great equalizer. And I think the early 20th century, because it was a, a moment where inequality was at similar, you know, reached similar peaks um, as it is today. And education also, this was the moment where education really first became seen as this 
tool or pathway to social mobility. And for many, I mean, especially in, in this realm of white collar work, I think it was, that wasn't false. Like that was really based on lived experience, but you know, we have to put that story in this broader context of changes in the economy, how elites are now pursuing other strategies to understand how you can have a very an accessible system of education um, and a lot of folks getting educated at, at higher rates with, you know, how that's compatible with very high income and economic inequality. Well, Christina Groger, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed. It really was a pleasure of talking today and congratulations on your new book. Thank you so much. Christina Groger is an assistant professor at Lake Forest College. Her new book is The Education Trap, published by Harvard University Press. A transcript of today's interview can be found at freshedpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not Fresh Ed, which takes no institutional position. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews really do help. Freshhead's team includes Sherry Yang, Lushi Guaba, Fatih Aktas, Ing Jung Cho, Obafemi Ungunle, Diang Jian, Annabella Afro Boteng, Anya Lin, and Phyllis Che Mensa. Freshhead is an independently run podcast without advertisements and is made possible by the support of the Open Society Foundations, NORAG, the Shockdev Family Fund, and listeners like you please consider donating to Fresh Ed by visiting freshedpodcast.com slash donate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.